we're going to be dealing with frustrations this morning, and I, I say that, uh, as I told Jamie this week, uh, I kind of give her, like, oh, this is where we're going, and kind of helps me process, and I said, we're going to deal with frustrations and how to handle frustrations, and she gave a look that wives give husbands sometimes, and husbands, we know there's something more behind that look, and so she gave me a look as I say, we're, we're going to be talking about frustrations and how to deal with them and, and why there are frustrations and, and how to work through those. And, and she gave that look. And so I said, what? You know, what? Nothing, right? Nothing. You wives, I don't know why you do that. You have something to say. Just say it. And so I know what you've got. There's something behind that look that you're wanting me to know because it's kind of like this, this ornery smile in your eyes and face and and so what? What is it? And she goes, well, it's funny that you're talking about frustrations because you tend to get frustrated a lot. And so in the back of my head, I said, yeah, like right now. And uh, but, uh, <laughs> I do get frustrated. Um, I get frustrated a lot. I get frustrated at things going on around me. I get frustrated in things that I experience and things that I expect God to do. And frustrations with the promises of God is what we're going to be dealing with this morning is we're going to be in the largest section in the book of Joshua. Uh, we're going to take this massive clump from chapter 13 through chapter 21, which deals with the allotment of land, uh, the places for the Levites. Um, and, and we're going to see frustration in the scriptures, but why they came about and how they come about in our own life. I know we like to focus on other parts of Joshua, like Jericho, the Red Sea, or the statements in Joshua 1 or Joshua 24, you know, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But the bulk of the book of Joshua in the Old Testament is about the allotment of land, because it is the fulfillment of God's promise, something that God spoke 430 plus years to uh, Abraham back in Genesis chapter 13. And so this book just focuses on the fruition of the promise of God, but within the promise of God, there is a birth of frustration. And so let's read it this morning. We're going to be reading, not, we're not going to read 13 through 21, don't worry. Uh, we're going to read chapter 13, verse 1 through 7 this morning. Forgive me if I uh, mispronounce words or names. I'll do my very best. I, I promise I've practiced once again this week, but sometimes it doesn't work. But. Beginning verse 1 of Joshua chapter 13. <clears throat> now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You're old and advanced in years. And there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines, and all those of the Geshurites from Shahor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron, and is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Goth, and Ekron, and those of Avim in the south, all the land of the Canaanites and the Mirah that belongs to the Sidonians, to effect to the boundary of the Amorites, the land of the Gebelites, and all of Lebanon toward the sunrise from Baal Gad toward Mount Hermon and Lebo, Lebo Hamath. Verse 6, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, this is the big one, to Mishraf, yeah, even all the Sidonians. And God said in verse 6, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time we've been able to worship your holiness and be in your presence. To hearing you speak to us through truth that is captured in song. Father, tune our hearts to you in this moment. 
Let us continue to worship you in spirit and truth as we hear your words of truth pour over us. Father, they might transform us and mold us more into your likeness, Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us and set us apart from this world. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. They may be in the midst of a frustration. Lord, that your truth would open up their eyes to see it clearly and see it the way you see it. And some of us, Lord, don't even know what we're fully dealing with. We can't seem to get our, our handle on it and our hearts are just unsettled. I ask by your mercy you reveal that. Bring healing in this place. My brothers and sisters Christ, you're here this morning that are just praising you for your wonders and glory. Let that continue to, to flow out and that fruit be evident in this place. Lord, I ask you to forgive me where I failed you. I pray that the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, that everything that come out of me be from you and your spirit. And Lord, don't let me get in your way to do what only you can do in this place. We surrender to you. We submit to you. We ask that you have a great and mighty work in our hearts and that your will be done. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, who sits upon the throne. Amen. So we're going to, be, like I said, we're going to deal with this whole section, but we're going to kind of break it up and really focus in chapter 13 because it launches into verse, uh, chapter 13 through 21 and even into Judges chapter 1. If you want to look, just to kind of give you a little paraphrase of what's going on, in verses 8 through 32 of chapter 13, what we have is one part of the allotment of land. And then in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, we have another portion which deals with the allotment of the land. And we actually should consider these cliff notes of the allotment or the giving of the land because when you begin in chapter 15 of Joshua and you run all the way through chapter 19, you have a more detailed description of who got what land, what tribe is going to be where, deals with landmarks and cities. And we're not going to really deal with the landmarks and cities. But if you want to, you can read through it later this afternoon. We're going to use verse 1 once again as we looked at last week where the Lord said to Joshua, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to, to take or to possess. And this isn't quite the pep talk like we talked about last week that God has given Joshua. This isn't like, fear not, for I am with you. The Lord is coming to Joshua and telling him, it is time now for you to step down as the leader. And though Joshua is old, we can know for sure that God could come into Joshua's life. He could prolong his life. He could give him more strength to finish the task that is laid before him. But instead, he says, there's very much land to possess. And we don't know why God doesn't allow Joshua to continue this. We do know that Israel has become reliant upon Joshua. Just as Israel was reliant upon Moses before Joshua took the leadership. But if we go back to the beginning of Joshua and go into the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, we see that the people of God, including Joshua in this moment, were to rely on God and His spoken word. Before the conquest began, one of the more familiar passages out of the book of Joshua comes out of verse 7, where the Lord says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Perhaps in this moment, in chapter 13, though Joshua is old, though there's still land to possess, what is going on is the Israelites have become too reliant on Joshua and his leadership when God wanted them to become reliant on Him. This is the command we have in Scriptures, not to rely on man, but to rely on God. And I doubt Joshua's morale was very high at this moment. He had been assigned a task. 
And yet that task was incomplete and God's come to him and says, your time on this earth is drawing to a close. So Joshua has his unfinished task, which creates an issue. The Israelites' leader is about to retire, which creates a vacancy. But in the midst of it, God is creating a situation for which His people can fully rely on Him. And this is some of the frustration we have that we have to learn, is that our self-sufficiency keeps us from enjoying the full sufficiency of Christ. Our deficient moments in life create opportunities for us to rely on the One who makes us fully sufficient. God goes to Joshua. He says, you're old, buddy. And there's work to be done, but it's time for you to retire. And so God creates this opportunity for His people to fully rely on Him, not on Joshua, and not on His leadership abilities, not on His military school or skills. And there are times in life when God has to come into our own life and create moments of discomfort so we can stop believing that we can do this life or we can do Christianity in our own power. And we all wrestle with self-sufficiency. And we can do this ourselves because what Satan has shown from Genesis chapter 3 is Satan wants us to believe that we can be like God. But only God is self-sufficient. Only God makes us sufficient. And only God can be our sufficiency. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us we are dead in the trespasses and sins. Romans chapter 3 says no one is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. No, not even one. And so our sinfulness and our sinful nature creates a forgetfulness of the severity of our sin before a holy God. We begin to think that we can handle this or we can do this maybe a little bit better than what God has already stated. But the reality is what Scripture reveals is we can't. And if you don't think you wrestle with self-sufficiency like I wrestle with self-sufficiency, how many of us actually woke up this morning praying the Lord's Prayer for God to give us our daily bread. God, give me what I need. Or how many of us woke up today realizing that we have food in the fridge, we have food in the pantry, and we can run to the store after church and get food. We can take care of ourselves. We become self-sufficient. Yet Jesus' prayers is truly give us our daily bread. We look to God as the one who provides everything we need. Jesus taught in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides, and that word abides means to remain. It means to dwell. It's not a passive action, but it is a deliberate action on, on, our, on our behalf. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. In other words, he does or she does what they're supposed to be doing. For apart from me, get this, Jesus says, you can do nothing. And I think we want to argue with God about that. I can do some things. I'm, I'm pretty good at napping, right? <laughs> but Jesus said, if you're not dwelling, remaining, abiding deliberately in my presence and bearing the fruit to which you were saved to bear, and you're not continually being with me, you can do nothing in this world. You are not self-sufficient. You are to be fully reliant upon me. Yet this creates an issue 
here in the text in Joshua chapter 13 that we have to deal with. We can't just skip over it. In verse 6, God says this, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. This is a direct command to Joshua, one of his last acts as leader, to deliver to the people of God. And God delivers his promise, I will drive out the people before Israel. Yet, if you read chapters 13 through chapter 17, in verse 13 of chapter 13, in verse 63 of chapter 15, in verse 16 of chapter 10, in verse 12 of chapter 17, we see that the people were in fact not driven out. If we were to go to Judges chapter 1, which Judges chapter 1 begins with a recap of what happened in the book of Joshua. In verse 21 of chapter 1 of Judges, in verse 27 through 36 of Judges chapter 1, we are told that eight, eight of the twelve tribes could not drive out the people who continued to live in the land. And yet I hear God say, I will drive them out before the people of Israel. And then I read the rest of the scriptures and I say, that didn't happen. So God, where was the driving? I mean, is this a moment where the people of Israel are like, Jesus, please take the wheel. I mean, we want to be, I don't know what's going on. God, I need to understand. And this is where we are in life. God says something. He speaks his truth in our life. And yet we don't see it happening. So we get frustrated. Well, I guess I can't trust that. And it creates a moment in Israel that leads to the frustration that is the book of Judges. Is we hear the word of God, but I don't see the word of God. Proverbs, 9, or Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. Yet God said he would drive the people out, yet there's no driving. So how do we understand this? When you come to a complex issue in Scripture, the best way to understand, define, or interpret that is to define it with Scripture. It is a practice called hermeneutics. So I use Scripture to define Scripture. And after I do that, if I'm still struggling, then I go to some of the early forefathers and people who have greater wisdom within the Scriptures to understand the context. God declares something to Joshua that he is going to do, yet it does not happen, which seems contradictory, especially when we go to Joshua 21, verse 45, which sums up this largest section of the book that says not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. I want to say, wait a minute. You said you were going to drive. And yet there's numerous people who were not driven. If you go to chapter 14, Beginning in verse 6, an old friend returns to the pages of Scripture by the name of Caleb. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Caleb, Caleb was one of the original spies who went on the, the first spy mission that Moses sent out. And Caleb was with Joshua. Now it appears that Caleb was younger than Joshua. Because he comes in this text, and he says, I'm 85 years old. Which lets us know that this campaign, this conquest of the promised land, the book of Joshua, is about seven years long. But we also know Joshua is about 110, so there's an age difference. But he comes to Joshua, as Joshua is beginning to allot or give out the land, give out the, the promise to the people, because that's what God commanded. And he reminds Joshua that Moses said, I could have a piece of the land as well. And so as you're giving out the land, I'm coming to accept my part of the promise. And so Joshua gives Caleb part of, the, part of the land. But 
Listen to Caleb's request in verse 12 of chapter uh, 14 here. He says, So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. The Anakim, by the way, was a term used for people who were considered giants. They eventually lived in the land of Philistines. We talked about this last week. Just think Goliath when you think of Anakim. So Caleb says, I'm aware they're there. They have these great fortified cities. But listen to what he says. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord had said. The difference in this is that Caleb returns to God's promise. He understands the obstacles that lay within the promise of God, the Anakim, the giants, the fortified cities. Yet Caleb also believed that God could do what God said he would do. So he acts out of courage and strength and faith in the promises of God. Well, Why didn't God do that for the rest of Israel? Well, in Judges chapter 2, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, speaking to all of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. This is the promise fulfilled. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. The word covenant means promise. God says, I'll never break my promises to you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Meaning this is God's part of the promise and this is the calling for the people's part of the promise. They have an active role as well. He says, you shall break down their altars. But then hear this. But you have not obeyed my voice. Meaning God's people did not do what God told them to do. What is this if you have done? So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. Hence the frustration that becomes judges for the people of God. Well, we need to understand when it comes to frustrations. And sometimes this is hard to see when we're in the midst of it. Is God's word declares always, always what he will do. You can take God's word to the bank every single time. The issue here in Joshua is not with God's word. Caleb came to Joshua and understood that God would drive out the people no matter how big they were or how big their cities were. Caleb understood the promise of God, though, required Caleb to be an active participant within that promise. That he had to live out his faith and trust that God would do what he said he would do. So the eight unsuccessful tribes that were given in Judges, they were content. They became content, even though they knew the command of God and the promise of God, that instead of driving the people out, they're going to put them into forced labor. So they knew God's promise, but they decided they were going to just settle. It's not that bad. And that act of settling and not being obedient created the spiritual roller coaster that you read in Judges. Caleb, on the other hand, he heard God was going to drive. So what Caleb did, he got in God's vehicle. I'm going to go where God's saying to go, and I'm going to do what God says to do. So in Judges chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. And you think, well, that's only three people. But you got to understand, in the Bible, when it speaks of sons, sometimes it refers to tribes. So three tribes of Anakim. Three tribes of giant men with fortified cities. 
whereas the eight tribes who were unsuccessful in Judges only had one tribe each to deal with. Caleb trusted God. So here's our frustration. God's Word declares what God will do. And here's the other part. God's Word declares what we must do. And our frustration is in the must of our action. God declared He would drive them out and He would settle His people. In Exodus chapter 23 and 24, God's Word gave the command that you were to drive out and the promise of God's presence was going to do the driving. So God delivered His promise so His people could become faithful in joining in God's promise. But it was going to take work. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be time-consuming. It was going to be sacrificing. You know, several years ago, I don't know how long we've, we've had the conversation about seminary, um, almost since we were married, I think. Um, and we always talked about it and prayed about it, and it always seemed to come back up in a conversation, but God never seemed to open the door. Well, several years ago, He did. He opened the door, and, and as I began thinking about seminary, and the reason I wanted to go, because I knew seminary would better equip me to do what God has called and commanded me to do in this role, what He's, he's told me, that this is where He wants me. And so I, needed, I wanted to get better tools. I wanted to know how to get deeper into God's presence and into His Word and, and to be able to equip you, the people of God, the saints, which I'm called to out of the Scriptures. But it wasn't enough for me to just say, okay, I'm going to do seminary. It wasn't even enough for me to, to go through the process of application or even to sign up for a class. In order for me to do what I knew what God was leading me to do and knew the outcome that, that it would lead to, I had to put the time in. I had to go through the frustrating part of doing homework and writing papers again. I had to sacrifice things that I wanted to do in order to complete this task. And that's what the promises of God do is God delivers His Word, which we can always trust, but it calls us on his, by His people to respond, to apply, and to live it out. This driving in Joshua was calling and requiring the people of God to obedience, faithfulness, and a willingness to put in the work. And that's what we need to hear when we hear the Word of God, is God is saying, this is what I'm going to do, but it's going to require you to put in some work in this. We see this in our salvation. Now, we don't work for our salvation. But the Bible says that God gifted His Son, Jesus, to all who would believe. The gift of Jesus Christ is the promise. It is set. The act on our part as the individual is that we have to accept that gift so we can live out the promise. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... Jesus being the Son of God, that's set. That's the promise. The whoever is us, the act of the individual to live in the promise. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so the abiding and the, uh, the dwelling with God are the result of us living and believing in the promise of God. I think 2 Corinthians captures even better if you want to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. God declares what he's going to do what He's already done and what His will is, and then we have to choose by the free will God gives us to be a part of His promise and to live that out. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 18, the Word says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning they have confessed the promise of God, 
that Jesus is the Son of God. So they've recognized God's word as truth, as promised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the result of living and being, believing God's promise. It says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, meaning it is God's promise. Who through Christ, the promise was materialized through him, reconciled us to himself. That's the result of the promise. And then hear this and gave us to the ministry of reconciliation. That's our part of living in the promise. And so we see this in our Christian life is that I did not come up with this. I wish I did because I think this is just the way he said it. his name is uh, J.D. Greer. He's our president of Southern Baptist Convention. And he said this and like, pfft, I mean, I knew it, but it just brought it. And I hope it brings perspective. We define Christianity and our salvation as a moment. I accepted Christ. I walked down the aisle. I was baptized. I said a prayer. I went to VBS. I went to revival. I went to that conference. We define Christianity as a moment. But when you look at the scriptures, scriptures defines Christianity as a movement. God moving within the life of the believer. And so Jesus says that we are to abide in him so we might bear fruit. But a lot of us are so frustrated with God because we define our relationship with God by this moment. I was five, I was six, I was 18, 19, 30, whatever, and I accepted Christ. But God has called us to a relationship to live in his promise and out his promise. And so our frustrations with God isn't because God doesn't do what he said. We want to blame God because that's our sinful nature. Just look in Genesis chapter 3 when sin came in. They started blaming anybody they could except themselves. And so we want to point the finger at God. God, you lied to me. But our frustration is not with God. Our frustration is understanding what God has said, but not living in what God has promised. We're not bearing the fruit that God's word has placed before us. Paul went through this frustration. So you're not alone. I'm not alone. In Romans chapter 7, the Bible says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not want to do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Do you hear Paul's frustration in this moment? I keep doing stupid stuff. I mean, that's kind of paraphrased today. He goes on. Because Paul understands his frustration in life isn't with God. His frustration is with his own sinful nature and his disobedience to what God has spoken over him. So Paul says in verse 19 to 20, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Then jump into verse 22. I delight in the law of God. I delight in God's promise, his word, which will never fail and always prove true. That's what Paul's saying. In my inner being, I delight in it. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is frustrated, but he understands his frustration is not with God or what God has said. His frustration is, in fact, with himself. I am a sinner and God is holy. And because I keep falling to what I don't want to do, I become frustrated because I'm not seeing the promises of God fulfilled in my life. This is Paul. 
This is the guy God commissioned to take Christianity to the known world. And so if he's dealing with frustrations, you better believe we're going to deal with frustrations. Israel understood the law of God. They understood the promises of God, but instead of living in them, they became captives to their fear. They lived by fear instead of by faith. So the Bible commands us in James chapter 1, verse 22, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jesus gave a parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So our frustration isn't that God isn't faithful. Our frustration is that we are unfaithful. And we see the unfaithfulness of people all around us who are created in God's image. The Bible then gives us these instructions as we battle with this. In James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then hear this promise. He will exalt you. Israel and our problems and frustrations because of our unfaithfulness. And our frustrations with things going on around our lives and other people's lives is because if God promise has already been poured over all creation and people are choosing not to live by it. It's not that God isn't true. It's just that we have this choice whether we're going to believe God and live by it or not. So the Bible gives us this this course of action. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, If we confess our sins, if we confess our disobedience, our unfaithfulness, it says, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then James commands us in James chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to yourself, to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. And I encourage you to read the next verses after that because it talks about the prayers of the righteous and how God hears the prayers of the righteous. To confess our sins to one another. My frustrations in life, our frustrations in life, are the spiritual longings of the Holy Spirit within inside of us. We desire to witness and partake of God's eternal promise. But because of our doubts and our disobedience, because of our unfaithfulness and our unwillingness to live in God's promise, we create problems and we create frustrations. But perhaps this morning, you're here and you're realizing that your relationship with God is defined not by a relationship, but by a moment. And God is coming to you in this time that He wants to let you know about His eternal promise that He sent His only Son to this earth, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. And He did, and He rose. And the Bible says, when I admit that I'm a sinner, that I, I mess up, I do the things I should not do, and I ask God for forgiveness for my sins, the Bible says, I will be saved, I will be forgiven, and I will become a child of God. 
Perhaps you're here this morning and that's where you are. You need to step into God's promise. So I'm going to ask you to come down here in a second and just say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to have a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've just got a bunch of uh, going on. Our frustration is not with God. Our frustration is with people, sometimes ourselves, who refuse to listen to what God has spoken. We get frustrated because people act in contrary or against God's eternal word. And maybe that's you this morning, and you need to come before the Father and submit and confess to Him. You may have frustrations in your life, in your family, with your budget, I don't know, your job. It's time for us to see what it really is. But if you're here this morning and you need Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to come down, admit you're a sinner, admit you need God's forgiveness. Believe that Jesus is the only way to find that forgiveness, and the only way to eternal life, and let it be known. Kevin's going to come up and lead us, and I want to pray for us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. Father, you give us your word, which is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And Lord, we need your forgiveness. I confess that there are times in my life that I choose to do what I think is best rather than what I know what you have said. I see things through my lens. Father, give me your vision. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I know that we all go through trials and tribulation. I know we all go through types of persecution. <coughs> and Father, sometimes we point the finger at you and wonder why. Help us to trust you. Help us to see the obstacles that lay ahead and know that you are faithful and you can take care of it. Forgive me if I've gotten your way in any, any way through your word. And I pray in this time for those who need to accept you as your Lord and Savior that your spirit would lay so heavily upon their heart that they can't stay where they are. To you alone be the glory and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand. I invite you to come.